I'm Simon Doonan, and this is The Barney's Podcast, the show that celebrates fashion, style, culture, and most of all, personality. I've always said that when design looks good, it looks like it's just supposed to be that way. Like it was uncovered instead of created. Like it was sort of always there in the universe, and I was merely uncovering it. That's Jonathan Adler, an amazing potter, designer, thinker. He's also my husband. We're always joking that normally I'm the one that gets all the attention, like I'm the picture, he's the frame. But today I am turning the mic on Jonathan Adler. Jonathan launched his first collection at Barney's in 1993. Now he's a global name in home furnishings, but to me, he's just Johnny. And to understand us, we have to go all the way back to the first time we met. So Jonathan, let us tell the listeners the sordid, terrifying story of our first date. Oh my God, that first date. It's a miracle we're here today because the first date was kind of disaster adjacent. Um, We knew who each other were, so it was sort of a semi-blind date. Um, And we went to a Japanese restaurant in Chelsea. You were sitting there, and I had rollerbladed over. It was November, and um, I was, like, late. So I sped over, and the second I got into the restaurant, I burst into a complete sweat, Um, like a bizarre, like— insane sweat and had to excuse myself for 10 minutes. I have that effect on people. Yeah, right. And um, then I composed myself and I thought, all right, let's go through this date. And you were mute, absolutely mute. And so I just thought to myself, this is very strange. But somehow here we are. I was captivated by your beauty. Yeah, right. Um, Well, I think that might be a style thing. Like, English people tend not to ask a lot of direct questions. Well, that's, I remember, I would say, like, so, where are you from? And you'd say, Reading. (laughs) Pause. Crickets. (laughs) But, so the date was strange. However, I always thought you were a bit of all right and always fancied you. So I thought, we need to give this a a second chance. And we did a voila. Yeah. Well, from my point of view, I remember you, you know, I, I had never met you, but I was aware of your work because we were already selling it at Barney's, your striped pot. So we're talking, what year was this? 1990, what year is it now? It was 1994. 1994 was our first date. Yes. So um, you were 28 on rollerblades, covered in clay because you were producing all your own parts. So I think the second or third date, I came down to this studio that you were in. And um, compared to the glamorous HQ that you have now, it was kind of hilarious. Do you remember that first studio? Oh, of course I do. Um, I started out as a groovy, hippy-dippy potter um, in this collective pottery studio in Soho called Downtown Potter's Hall. Um, And it was really like stepping into another era. It was like being in the 1970s. And I still can't quite understand how you um, could handle it because you were all Mr. Glamorous um, and I was a nitty-gritty, clay-spattered potter in a pottery commune. Cut to 23 years later, and it turns out we'd actually done a complete bait-and-switch on each other because I think you thought you were getting 
a hippy-dippy bohemian, and I thought I was getting a buttoned-up little fashion executive. But as it turns out, you are actually an extremely bohemian person, um, and I am a little bit more um, – I'm serving executive realness a little bit more than you would have ever imagined at the time. Well, maybe we learned from each other because back then I was executive vice president, creative services. I had a fancy title. I wore suits every day. It was, you know, a different period of my life. So now – anyway – we, we aren't here to talk about me. We're here uh, to talk about you, Jonathan. This is a first, not talking about you. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about how you first discovered clay? You first got your hands into the clay. Was it a primordial, primeval, prehistoric moment? Totes. I first touched pottery at summer camp, first touched clay when I was 12. And from that split second, it was on. It seemed like... The gods um, had called me to be a potter. Uh, and even though I always wanted to continue to be a potter and spent was passionate about it, spent my teen years making bongs in the basement studio I had set up in my um, house in, in a rural small town in southern New Jersey. Um, and what I, did your parents think of you making bongs and being this um, – hipster bohemian before it was hip. <laughs> My parents were very, very creative, artistic people. They totally got it and supported it um, in a way that I I can't really ever thank them enough for. Um, it all seemed Didn't to make they sense. they say, why aren't you becoming a podiatrist or an orthodontist <laughs> or something? Oddly, no. Um, they were – my parents were the perfect mix of bohemian and bourgeois, which is a tradition I carry on to this day. Um, so they rolled with it. My mom's only concern about my pottery studio was um, getting clay on the rug, which was legit. Uh, anyway, so I always wanted to be a potter, spent all my adolescence making pots, spent a lot of time. I went to Brown for college. and Can I interject something here? Totes. We have some of the pots that you made when you were like 12, and they're absolutely complex, like artisanal masterpieces that when I think of the stuff I was making when I was 12, they were nasty little pinch pot things that looked like turds, basically. <laughs> and But yours... So now I look at those and I think, wow, you do have some strange... Um, facility with clay that um, came out of somewhere, but it's a real thing, your your facility. Are you aware of that? I, I think I'm an idiot savant. I don't believe in fate so much. I really don't. However, there was just something about clay for me. It just, it was a moment. And it's it's really quite extraordinary that I've managed to turn that primal connection I felt to clay into a career. I remember coming to your studio in the early days when you were getting your orders from Barney's and you were making every single pot yourself, every mug, every decanter, um, glazing, baking, making. You had one assistant. You were wedging clay, hauling boxes up the stairs. You were like a manual laborer. And I remember saying to you, how on earth are you going to grow this company? This is like if like Albert Elbaz had to sew every dress or something like that. So, and you kept saying, oh no, nobody can throw like me. No one, you know, I'm the only one who can throw the things I design and blah, blah, blah. And you were committed to it. I said, well, it's a one-way, 
you're in a cul-de-sac then, you can't really grow your company because that would be like a fashion designer sewing all their own stuff. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, I remember it really well. And it was a strange moment because I I would gradually, accidentally started to build this cottage industry and I was making every piece myself. I'd like to think I was a pioneer of the maker's movement. It's kind of funny now because I think... You were a hipster artisan before it was hip. I was a hipster artisan before it was hip. And it's very funny because today, um, when, like, Brooklyn-y people see me, they think I'm sort of this um, poncy interior design mogul, little realizing that I actually made the Brooklyn maker's movement possible, comma, you're welcome, Brooklyn artisans. Anyway. No, you but don't think that's overstating slightly, Jonathan? I don't think it's overstating slightly. I, I think, um, no, of course it is. But I, for me... It wasn't like a self-conscious hipster move. It was just the only way I could imagine making a living. I had failed in every job I ever had. Um, I Didn't got, you get fired? Keeping it a hundy P, I did get fired from every job I ever had. Deservedly so. I was a terrible employee. I slept with everybody in the office. I was just a disaster. But anyway... So I couldn't make it in the workforce. I had no choice but to try to make it as a potter. Once I got an order from Barney's, which was my very first order, I cannot thank Barney's enough. Barney's is like not just birthed tons of incredible designers. Barney's birthed me. So thank you, Barney's. That must have been a difficult birth. It was <laughs> It was a difficult birth because I was 27. <laughs> <laughs> Barney's never got its figure back after giving birth mm. to me. Sad. Mm. Um, but anyway. Baby weight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I got this order from Barney's, and it was sort of a huge opportunity. It was a, one of those real moments in life that I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. I have, I'm have i selling to Barney's, the mecca of style and design and taste and luxury. Um, I need to make this happen. And I used to make everything myself. And how am I ever going to get out from behind that damn wheel? And eventually I did. I found this organization called Aid to Artisans, which is a nonprofit that connects American artists and artisans with artisans in the developing world. And they had a project in Peru. I got on the next plane and found this amazing workshop uh, that makes beautiful pottery, and it's a workshop with whom I collaborate to this very day. Well, I remember you came back from one of those trips from Peru, and you were you brought these textiles and pillows. So that was the jumping-off point for all your diversification with your products, right? Yeah, I found Peruvian textiles and fell madly in love and uh, sketched some designs on a napkin. And I hate to give you credit, Simon, but I'm about to, so get ready. Um, I remember really clearly coming back from Peru and I'm making these pillows and and you said, well, maybe you should be making more stuff. Like, what do you think your work is about? And I had never really thought about it. I was just so busy making it. And I said, well, I suppose my work is really about um, impeccable craftsmanship and luxury, but it always has sort of a cheeky and irreverent spirit and it's always glamorous. And so you said, well, there you have it. And we kind of came up with the idea at that moment of modern American glamour. I went from being just a potter and a pillow guy to being a purveyor of modern American glamour, all thanks to Simon Doonan's wisdom. Wow. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Simon. I think you were figuring it out on your own anyway, because, I mean, realistically, could you continue of 
that manual labor period, realistically, was that going to go on forever? Right. But this is a podcast, so I thought we're supposed to sort of make things seem meaningful. <laughs> so, Johnny, like people always have these dreamy, magazine-y stories about their travels. You're always flying out the door, clutching five passports, going somewhere or other. Tell me about your attitude to travel, places you've been that's made a big impression. Travel has informed my work. It's driven me insane. It's screwed up my inner time clock. Um, And I've had some freaky stuff happen from being carjacked um, at gunpoint in Peru um, to just spending lots of time in China and India and Japan. I was there when you were carjacked in Peru. I was actually hiding at our little beach house that we'd rented. And on that trip, you got carjacked along with somebody else. And all these horrifying things kept happening. But the parts that you produced on that trip were astonishing and still a huge part of your um, offering. So I think maybe travel doesn't always have to be a nice experience for it to be inspiring. Until that point, I always thought magical realism, the Latin American literary style, was sort of – I never really was into it. It seemed too far-fetched until I realized that in Latin America, magical realism is more just like realism. It was on that trip that I was having a contentious business meeting and a parrot fell out of a tree dead on the table. Like a horrible omen. Yeah. everything's. Like, I remember that. Everything's infused with symbolism and it's just much more um, – dreamy and surreal than our pedestrian lives here. But that was a freaky-ass trip. The weirdest part was when I got carjacked, (laughs) I was in the middle of nowhere and we were at some pharmacy. And I sort of crept into the pharmacy after literally being held up with one guy pointing a machine gun at me and the other pointing a pistol. And they really probably should have, I mean, they could have, should have, would have just killed me. Thank God they didn't. I leapt over the counter of this pharmacy and the chick who lived upstairs um, heard the commotion and came down and said, you're a bandito, you're a bandito, and started to beat me with a broomstick in her hand. And the very first thing I could think of was, no, soy judio, meaning I'm Jewish. It's a real Woody Allen moment. It was a Woody Allen moment thing like, no, I'm just, you know, a Jewish potter. Um, Just as a little side note to the Peruvian tourist board, it is a wonderful country. I have very happy memories of those trips. Oh, my God. People should go. People should go to Peru. It is the dreamiest, most magical. the people divine. And the food. In fact, I would say that before I went to Peru, as I look back, I feel like my life was like kind of led in black and white. And Peru was when everything burst into technicolor. You must have eaten a funny mushroom. Probably. You're kind of coming full circle with Barney's because you're doing this whole new, fantabulous collaboration. Yeah. I hate to say it. It's been 25 years of dream building. um, And I am about to do this huge launch of product at Barney's that is lots and lots of custom products for Barney's, limited edition, um, Barney's exclusive. Give me a good example. Well, over my career, I've designed some stuff that really are sort of the my personal canon. Um, pots like my Muse collection, which are these sort of mysterious-looking vessels with um, faces and lips and all types of different body parts. And they're really kind of great, if I dare say so myself. And for me, they've always been sacred. 
Johnny, you just used the word sacred to describe your oeuvre, your work. <laughs> Unpack that for me. I've always said that when design looks good, it looks like it's just supposed to be that way. Like it was uncovered instead of created. Like it was sort of always there in the universe and I was merely uncovering it. Um, and so I, I suppose in that sense, the word sacred actually does apply when something's really good, it feels completely familiar, even though it's brand new. When I've achieved something, it's when I look at something and think like, oh, right, that, that old thing. But it's not an old thing. And it, actually, there's this lamp I made once called my Nelson lamp. Um, I made this pot, and it's like this kind of fluted, organic gourd shape. And I took it to my workshop in Peru, and I had it. Um, I had them produce it, and... I looked at it and I thought, you know what? This looks too familiar. I must have copied something. I can't possibly put this out into the world. This was before Google Images. Um, I can't put this out into the world because it's obviously a copy of something. It looks too familiar. And it kind of just sat on the shelf for like six months or a year as I thought about it and thought, what have I copied? Until finally I realized I hadn't copied anything. It just was really good. It just looked like it had always existed. Um, and that is really a criteria for me of, of success, if something looks like it always existed. When I talk about my Muse collection of pots, I would say they're part of my own personal canon. Now what am I going to do? I'm going to deface them. I'm going to take them and sort of turn them on their head. So these pots that are um, these kind of m meant to be sort of mysterious vessels um, with faces and stuff, I, I painted on them. I did all types of gold defacement on them. So there might be um, a third eye in gold or like a Bowie lightning bolt. I did a lot of iconography from from music on these vessels. So there's like, there's a Lisa Left Eye Lopez um, streak under the eye. There's a, I took some eyebrows and uh, kind of did some gold ornamentation on them a la vanilla ice. So there's a lot of a uh, Music well, that's throwback. Something people might not know about you is like you are completely pop culture music obsessed. When I met you, you was it was all rap, rap, rap. I didn't know anybody else who was so into it, like Biggie Smalls and Snoop. I encountered through you. I always have drawn on popular culture in my work, and yeah, I do try to infuse my cultural interests into my pots which is, it's a funny thing to be a potter who's trying to engage with culture. It's not typically how one rolls. Pottery tends to be more really just a formal exploration, like, you know, about lines and stuff. And for me to infuse it with my cultural interests um, has always kind of been an important part of my work, not just for myself. I'm not saying, you know, that my, my work has to be seen as some huge statement. It's just that for myself, it's a way to keep constantly engaged with the stuff I think about in my own work as you you better than anyone know that um i'm sort of an analytical brooding ruminative person yeah you definitely have two sides to you like one is well you tell me what are your two sides well i want to hear from you um well there's one that's sort of fairly bubbly and infantile and fun yeah like um, a 13 year old idiot yeah like um 
with a bit of valley girl, a bit of rollerblading, more than skateboardy, a bit. Um, you know, a bit infantile. It's totally <laughs> playful. And then there's the sort of person that reads three books a week who's always brooding and cross-referencing articles in the New York Times with the New Yorker and like intensely more like other members of your family, a lot of whom are academics and... Yeah, it is a really weird combination. I would say when it comes to the bubbly um, 13-year-old valley girl side of me, I would say to you, Simon, you're welcome. I think it's really fun. And when it comes to the brooding, ruminative Franz Kafka side of me, I would say I'm really sorry. Um, I must be a nightmare to live with. Not that you're a perfect BT-dubs. You're actually very easy to live with because I kind of like you going back and forth between Ariana Grande and Franz Kafka. You're don't you always say you're Ariana Kafka? Yeah, I would say I'm very much Ariana Kafka. And at least I keep you on your toes, which is so important considering you're about three feet tall. You should always <laughs> be on your toes. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Yes. Now, when is your relaunch at Barney's? I want to make sure I'm there to throw rotten tomatoes at you. <laughs> um, May. Everything is going to be so wantable. I want to see you throw a pot on the floor, like have a ghost moment, you know, very Demi Moore. I think we could reenact that in sort of a superannuated gay reenactment. I'd need a little box to stand on, though, if I was going to be Patrick Swayze. And little arm extenders. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jonathan, I have a very deep philosophical question for you. When have you surprised yourself? Hmm. I'm kind of surprised that I have built a business which enables me to to make whatever I want whenever I want to make it and to kind of have a bourgeois lifestyle. It's all been a surprise. But the reason I've been able to do this is just I've worked really hard for the last 25 years. And it's been a lot of work and thought and um Blood, sweat, and tears. And Michigas. Oh, my God. So much Michigas, y'all. The Michigas never stops. But luckily, I've considered myself unemployable. And no matter what has gone wrong, and stuff has gone wrong, um, I've always uh, resilienced myself back to work. So I think that my work and my career is really the result of, like, a long slog and a delightful one. So here's a question for you because um, – Unprecedentedly, this whole situation is about moi, not toi, moi, Simon. This is about me, me, me. What has surprised you about me? What surprised me about you is that you are very business savvy. One of the reasons why you've been able to take what is essentially a really hokey little craft business and make it into um, a global kind of phenomenon is um, that you are very business-oriented, you're very rational, you're not sort of um, neurotic and nutty and overspending on ridiculous things, and you're pragmatic and you're resilient. It's funny you think I'm a good business person, because if I am, it's been super accidental, and I certainly didn't start out as one. I was completely incompetent, but I I guess I just recognized that if I wanted to be a potter, which is a preposterous thing to want to be, I had to also be a really practical potter and um, make it work from a business standpoint so that I could make what I want to make. And I think, I hope you would say that knowing me as long as you've known me, that Really, the business is purely a means to an end. Um, Regarding business, 
You and I have a story that is the same story. We both went through this. Years ago in the 70s, I had a t-shirt business in LA in another life. And um, I shipped off my first order to Judy's, my t-shirts. Shipped them off, waited for them to pay me and got increasingly indignant because no check arrived. And then I called them up and I said, where's my check? And they said, oh, you're the idiot that sent in the merch with no invoice attached. And you did exactly the same thing. So I always tell that story to people like, you can figure it out. It's a, it's a series of logical things where you learn by doing completely idiotic things, failing, failing up. Stuff like that. Well, I think that if people were to look at us, they'd probably see there's some differences. You're so much older than me and shorter, um, and I'm just a more urbane, sophisticated person. Um, no, I think people would, would assume there's you know some sort of cultural differences. You're English, I'm American, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like we're actually the same person. We're both um, creatively driven and have managed to be kind of successful business folk by accident and purely as a means to an end. I guess what I'm saying is that we're very similar and that we're both fantastic, (laughs) (laughs) especially me. Right. Sounds fair enough. Sounds good. That's that's our real bond is that Mm. we're both just perfect, especially me. The Barneys Podcast is produced by Barneys and Transmitter Media. If you like what you hear, please rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Simon Doonan, you are the cutest, best person. We've been together 23 years later, and you remain my little rock. Um, And Barneys More of a pebble. Yeah, you are kind of a little more of a pebble. (laughs) 